Hello, peoples, and welcome to Esoterica Cinema, the podcast where we take films from the cinematic multiverse and discuss the hell out of them. My name is Jason Peters, and I am coming at you with another patented five-minute review. Today's film is Rafifi, starring Jean Servais, written by Auguste Le Breton, Jules Dassin, and Renee Wheeler, and directed by Jules Dassin. Now, these are all French films, and I'm sure there's a certain je ne sais quoi you got to put on there that I'm not putting on there. So apologies in advance to all of our French listeners. Google has the following description. Out of prison after a five-year stretch, jewel thief Tony turns down a quick job his friend Joe offers him until he discovers that his old girlfriend Mado has become the lover of local gangster Pierre Gruter. Expanding a minor smash and grab into a full-scale jewel heist, Tony and his crew appear to get away clean, but their actions after the job is completed threaten the lives of everyone involved. Now, the film was released in 1955, made $518,000 against a budget of just $200,000, so pretty good return. And as far as Jules Dessine, he actually paid himself just $8,000 at the time to write act, and direct the film. Two interesting aspects of this production. Now, the film was released in the U.S., but it was actually produced in France. The reason for this is because the director, Jules Dessin, was actually named as a communist during the McCarthy trials. He was named by fellow filmmakers, and in fact, while he was briefly subscribed to the Communist Party. He was really apparently only part of it for a handful of months. So this is yet another unfair example of someone who was blacklisted in Hollywood when they really should not have been. Even to the point that, so because he was blacklisted in the U.S., he from there went to France. And it actually worked out very fortuitously for him because he became a very big sensation in France. He was a very renowned director and was constantly in demand for work. And apparently he was struggling a lot in the States before all of this went down. So as he attempted to get this done, because of his experiences back in the States, a lot of the U.S. studios were trying to sort of carpet bomb him from afar and prevent him from getting this made even in France because he was named as a communist at the time. And that was obviously looked down upon to such a degree. So he had a lot working against him in the creation of this film and really had to work very hard finally was able to get it on like his third or fourth go. And boy, good thing he did because this film is very renowned. It's a great, it's a very good film. You know, it it has a reputation as sort of like the original heist film. And for very good reason, you can see its blueprint in films to this day, most famously and recently the Ocean's 11 movies, which, you know, borrow very heavily from this. The other interesting aspect of this is that it was adapted from a book of the same name, and apparently the book is atrocious. Everybody says, like, the book is horrible. I I really don't know how it even got optioned or, you know, selected to be made into a film, but, like, even Desin himself had a huge problem with a lot of the subject matter. Apparently, even for 1955, it had blatantly racist themes, which again, if that, if people are saying that in 1955, it's gotta be pretty bad. And then on top of that, it had these apparently very graphic scenes of necrophilia that were in the book. And so Jules has had no idea how to bring that, bring that to the, you know, fifties era Hollywood. Like, are you kidding me? So 
he had to basically take a number of liberties and sort of take elements from the book, extract a lot of it out, and then sort of put together his own presentation. So there's a lot of added context in the book that, from what I understand, is all for the worse. Francois Truffaut himself even famously said, out of the worst crime novel I've ever read, Jules Dessin has made the best crime film I've ever seen. As for the film itself, so again, it's a heist film. It starts off where they're going to do something small for this jewelry store, and then they decide, nah, you know, let's go big or go home. And so it's all about them going through the motions of doing the test and casing the place and, you know, doing all the planning. It, it takes a little bit to get going. It starts off a little slow, but then about halfway through the film, they actually pull the trigger on the heist. And man, let me tell you, the centerpiece of this film is a half-hour sequence that is almost entirely silent. There's no dialogue at all, and beyond that, there's no music, there's very little sound, and it creates such a tension as these guys are trying to break in and steal these diamonds. And the first thing that it made me think of is, wow, Brian De Palma definitely lifted heavily from this for the first Mission Impossible movie, you know, the famous scene where Tom Cruise is, you know, lift, lowering himself down through the air vent with the wires, and, you know, it has the the drop of sweat that almost lands and hits the ground that he catches on the glove. Great scene. And this is very much like that. And I won't really give away too much more, but even just the mechanics behind the heist that they're pulling shares a lot in common with that scene. What else really makes that scene work is just the sound design. It's such an elegant and effective use of sound when it's done, like to just pull all of the sound, you know, all the background sound and, and just have these, all the sound in this scene is diegetic, but like brought so low that you can just barely hear what's going on. Maybe hear a little bit of background, but, and then all of a sudden, you know, when somebody like stumbles or something and you hear that huge, you know, wrench cracking, like, my goodness, it just, it, it, you know, it, it breaks that tension so well and so loudly, but you're like, oh my God, like just the way that everything plays, it's really, really effectively done. And that again is a 30 minute sequence centerpiece of the film, what most people will take away from this. And it is really worth the price of admission alone. The film looks great. It was shot by Philippe Agostini, who apparently had a very considerable 20-year run as a cinematographer and was in high demand and very highly regarded. However, then decided that he wanted to get into making his own films and started writing and directing and apparently did not enjoy the same level of success or even respect from his peers. It, apparently his films just flat out weren't very good. But he's a great cinematographer, and that is definitely on display here. We get a lot of wide shots. You know, this is like the mid-50s. This is where the modern cinematic language, what we would now refer to as the modern cinematic language, is really just starting to come into its own. You know, we're getting away from everything being these super wide proscenium shots that just hold for minutes on end because all of the theatrical principles are being held over. We're now starting to get into where cinema is defining itself with cuts, with different angles, some of the staging opportunities. So you do see some of that style in this film. And yet we still haven't gotten to the point where a thriller has embodied all of what a thriller is today with regards to the suspenseful editing and sound effects and the push and pull that a filmmaker does when making a contemporary thriller, those notes haven't quite made it to the cinematic vernacular yet. So you haven't, you're not, it's a little bit slower, I guess you could say, you know, it's kind of the old school Humphrey Bogart, forties and fifties sort of thrillers where again, they're a little bit slower paced and a little bit slower shot, but really engaging where this film differs is in the dialogue in that there's very little dialogue. Of course, there's 
as I said, a 30-minute sequence with no dialogue whatsoever. But even leading into that, we have a pretty much silent protagonist, as is pretty common in French New Wave. And so we don't really learn much about him. We know he got into some shady stuff back in the day, but he's very guarded. He keeps to himself. And a lot of the characters are like that. And again, I think that's sort of a hallmark of French New Wave. If you look at old French films, a lot of the main characters are sort of emotionally closed off, right? Have that Francois Truffaut sense of detached coolness or just gruff criminals, right? So who is this film for? I would say it's for three types of people. Those who like traditional noir, those who like classic thrillers, and those who like French New Wave. All of this is going to come together for four and a half out of five stars from me for Rafifi. Kind of hard to find this film right now. It is streaming on Roku. And then, of course, I saw it on my beloved Red Envelope's Netflix that is coming to an end. Can you believe this? They announced the death of Red Envelope Netflix and my heart along with it. I am mortified. I am crushed. There's so many great, wonderful films that are only available on physical media, and they're all just going to go away. I don't know if they're going to do a warehouse sale, but I am certainly jumping in on that. Either way, I hope you've enjoyed this review of Rafifi. Once again, this is Jason Peters for Esoterica Cinema. Enjoy the movies. <laughs>